0: All right, well, we're about to switch gears here. Uh, and so we're going to do a little bit of review just to keep us up to, you know, so we're always remembering where we are in the biblical theology of the book of Leviticus. And we're, since we're about to start the last main point, I thought it would be appropriate to just quickly do a little bit of review. First of all, the theme of the book of Leviticus Holiness is essential for being in God's presence. It's the only way sinful man could could have God dwelling in our midst. And so that's why we have all these details about sacrifice, about uh, the duty of the priests, who they were, how they were prepared to stand in God's presence and then a whole host of things about uncleanness that could disqualify us from being able to stand in God's presence alright so we know we've, we've gone over all the sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7 God can dwell with mankind only through holy sacrifice no other way No other way. If you had asked a pious Israelite, is there any way you can get to heaven by worshiping Baal? Well, of course, the answer to that is obvious, no. Uh, No no amount of sacrifice to Baal is going to suffice. It doesn't matter how uh, well-intentioned you are Uh, It doesn't matter whether you believe Baal can save you or not. You're not not going to be able to dwell in God's presence if you're a Baal worshiper. All right. Holy sacrifices. Point point two. I'm choking on my little snack there between the uh, service and now. Excuse me. Holy sacrifices must be offered only by holy priests, those whom God has so designated to represent man to our holy God. All right, so that's that's why they're necessary. Next, holy priests must teach discernment concerning the pervasiveness of uncleanness. And so we've been... Through all those chapters, culminating with the Day of Atonement, one special day a year, Yom Kippur, when the priests go in, the high priest himself even goes into the holiest place in the tabernacle, and he presents uh, the appropriate sacrifices, and the entire nation is cleansed at once. Wow, what a what a day that is. And then where are we now? Here's our last point. Holiness must be manifested daily in holy living. Chapters 17 through 27. All right, so that's where we currently are. Chapters one through uh, 17 through 27 demonstrate that doctrine is practical and must be evidenced by moral and ethical living, as informed, of course, by the scripture. Everything is ultimately going to come down with, how does what you believe affect how you live? Now, I've had people tell me, as a matter of fact, it happened to me. Uh, I uh, was teaching at Maranatha at the time and the Lord led us to start a church. And so uh, yours truly was uh, the pastor. I'd, I didn't intend to go up there and start a church, but that's the way it worked out. And so one day, oh, we'd been going a couple of years, and uh, <clears throat> one, of, one of the members came up to me, and uh, he said something like this. Now, uh, what we need really is not doctrinal preaching your preaching is too doctrinal well that's interesting what would you rather have than doctrinal preaching said I'd like to have practical teaching something to get us from Sunday to Wednesday night and from Wednesday night to Sunday again something to get us through the week oh you want a quick fix well, no, I don't really want a quick fix, but the idea here is that pervasively, more and more in our society, people don't want doctrine. They don't really want to know what the Bible, how the Bible all fits together and, and how his word correctly understood doctrinally is the most practical thing You can do. Now, I suppose that, you know, you could have a guy and he's a pastor and he's always talking about the difference between sublapsarianism and superlapsarianism, you know, that kind of thing. And so, oh, uh, I never will forget when I came to school from my job as a process engineer, one of the first classes I took was systematic theology. In my opinion, before you ever take systematic, you ought to take biblical theology. But that's not how it worked. I would, so I took, I took systematic theology. And in class, I, d- I still remember, we were going over uh, Arminianism and Calvinism. and We had a very staunch Reformed theology guy. <clears throat> and we had uh, equally a very staunch Wesleyan Arminian. And at times, Dr. Bell would just stand back and let these guys argue with each other. I thought to myself, what have I gotten myself into here? I can't see any value of this at all. Uh, in the final analysis, when the Bible teaches something that a Calvinist latches onto, fine. When it teaches something that an Armenian latches onto, fine. Who cares how you're supposed to be able to fit those things together? It's impossible. So why spend all this time on it? Well, if you if you mean doctrine like that, that just goes nowhere, then I suppose that that is an objection. But what we need is doctrine that is applied to how we live. And that's what the rest of the book of the Leviticus is going to be centering in on. Now in chapter 17, which we're going to cover today, uh, we see that because atonement is possible only through the shedding of blood, Old Testament believers had to treat blood with the utmost in reverence. It's appropriate that we get here today right after celebrating communion. And uh, I'll draw some parallels uh, between those two things. But But anyway, we're going to talk today about the reverence for blood. All blood. Even animal blood. Any slaughter of an animal commonly used in ritual sacrifice, Leviticus teaches us, must be done at the tabernacle by a priest. And failure to uphold this command would result in a person's death. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to die prematurely. Uh, I I know where I'm going. I just don't want to get there any quicker than uh, otherwise I would have. Uh, That's kind of an odd thing, isn't it, about a Christian Do you know where you're going? Yes. Where are you going? To heaven to be with Christ. That sounds wonderful. You want to go there right now? No, not exactly. I just want to go there once the Lord's timing. But uh, if if you disobey the injunction about how reverential we should be towards blood, you are going to get there sooner than you might have thought. All right, let's take a look. Leviticus 17 verse 1, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. We've seen that introduction several times now in the book of Leviticus and here it is again. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat, all animals that could be used in sacrifice in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord. In other words, an offering to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. Now that term blood guilt refers especially to what happens when somebody murders His fellow Israelite. He was guilty of shedding innocent blood, and that was, of course, a what? A capital offense. Well, if you decide you would like to have some meat, let's say you've got uh, a, a goat, and you want to have a nice goat dinner. It was fairly, must have been fairly. Uh, rare for somebody to have that meat uh, meal in this time of Israel's history. After all, they had farm animals with them for one purpose. What was that? Well, of course, they they were required to sacrifice uh, when necessary. But you hoped that when you got to the promised land... You'd have these farm animals to do what? Be the first animals in your flock. They reproduce, and then pretty soon you've got lots of farm animals. Then you might say, that's when we're, we'll have a, a meal of a nice goat dinner. But every once in a while, maybe uh, when they left Egypt, they had a goat that was already expecting uh, little goats, and so. She bore these goats, and I've got some extra animals on hand. And you'd like to have goat. <clears throat> now, I've not tasted goat. Has anybody ever eaten goat? How was it, Rita? Pretty good, huh? Yeah, okay, I'll have to try it sometime. I think you can get it somewhere. I don't know where, but you can get it somewhere down here. Uh, all right, so <clears throat> what, what what does this command? It commands that if you're going to have a goat dinner... And then you bring your goat to the to the tabernacle, and the priest takes the animal, he slaughters it in the proper way, collects its blood, and then what does he do to the blood? Well, look at what uh, we have here. Notice the priest would accept the animal as a peace offering. Remember, in a peace offering, it's not like a bird offering where the entire animal gets burned up. No, this is is where there's a sprinkling of its blood on the altar and then burning of the fat of the animal. Then the priest would return the animal's meat to the one who brought it and he'd go home and they'd have a nice goat dinner. But that Israelite must never take the goat go out somewhere you know outside the inside the camp but not at the tabernacle or outside the camp in some more wilderness area he could not kill it there we'll see why here in a minute all right so verse verses 5 and 6 say this this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw, I don't know why it is that the ESV translates that particular Hebrew word, throw. Uh, The idea here is that they would sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, That's the, that is the requirement. You have to be very careful to do things just as the Lord had prescribed. We learn the reason for all domesticated animals to be handled by the priest in verse 7, and it is to avoid idolatry. Let's take a look here. This text tells us so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons. Now, this this word that ESV translates translates goat demons is simply the Hebrew word for goats, shagnarim. Okay, so why do they insert that demon part? Well, it's because this was a temptation out there in the wilderness. Uh, There was in the ancient Near East a, a common view that demons lived in wilderness areas. And they had various kinds of animals that would represent demons or that demons would possess. For instance like in Christ's day the demons were inhabiting uh, well they they were cast into the the pigs and so these would be pig demons. Uh, The the demons would inhabit various different kinds of animals and uh, Israel apparently had developed a propensity for worshipping these these things. And uh, so they shall no more Sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. Now, that's a word that means they had a uh, wrong devotion. Their devotion was supposed to be to the Lord. What's the very first commandment? I am the Lord. I'll have no other gods literally before my face. In other words, in my presence. I can't, you know, that's the one thing I cannot accept is sacrifice where you become devoted to false gods, demons, all kinds of of black arts and magic that was going on in the ancient world during this time. Uh, This shall be a statute forever for them, throughout their generations. So if you had to bring the sacrifice to the tabernacle, it was not so it could be sacrificed to the goats, any demons. No, this was an act of devotion to the Lord. There was no question what your purpose was in bringing this peace offering. You were oriented to obey the Lord and not fall into uh, false worship. Idolatry as we go through the rest of the scripture <clears throat> was a perennial problem for Israel. Especially as they entered the promised land and interfaced with worshipers of Baal. This was why one of the reasons why God wanted his people uh, to, <clears throat> to go into the promised land fortified With all this Levitical instruction about how to steer clear of idolatry in worship. Worship had to be pure. It had to be focused on the Lord and not on false idols. On the other hand, they were going in to take over, dispossess a bunch of people who had been Baal worshippers for centuries. This was the common view of people who lived in Palestine. I don't like that word to use for Canaanites. They, they were, the Canaanites were all oriented towards Baal worship. And above all, God did not want his people to be attracted by that. Now you might say, well, what was attractive about Baal worship? Why would they have been seduced by this kind of thing? The answer is, the goal of Baal worship was what I'll call total prosperity. Baal worship was an ancient version of the health and wealth gospel. That's why I'm so concerned about certain elements of Christendom today that makes it seem like, well, If you do all the right things, God's going to prosper you. We used to have, I don't know, I suppose we do, I don't watch them anymore, but uh, health and wealth gospels, gospel preachers on TV. Send me uh, $50, a minimum gift of $50, and God's going to bless you. You're going to be wealthy and very successful. Send me... $500, and the Lord's going to heal you of whatever is ailing you. Uh, If you give me that, I'll send you for $500. I'll send you a handkerchief that's been blessed by me. And I have the gift of healing. And if I bless this handkerchief and I send it to you, then all you have to do is just claim your healing. Name it and claim it. Okay? Got problems in your marriage? No problem at all. Why, if you get one of these handkerchiefs, God will heal your marriage. And uh, you're you having a bit of depression? It's the, probably the number one psychological problem people in America have today. Why is that? You know, you'd, you'd think, here we, here we have all we need and then some. How many people here went to bed hungry last night and you don't know where your next meal is coming from? Seeing no hands, I'm assuming that God is meeting your needs and then some. Uh, We've got all kinds of things to spend our money on. Things that we actually don't need, but we spend our money on them anyway. Just give you an example. I ordered a pair of pants from a company called Sitka. They're called Traverse Pants. And I got them the other day, and I tried them on. They fit beautifully. The material is just astounding material. It's soft, and it's tough and it's warm, and it's breathable, and yada-da-da-da-da-da. You say, why did you buy those pants? Because I bought a Traverse hoodie made out of the same material, and I want pants to go with a hoodie, and now come October 1st, I'll be out there in the woods dressed in my Traverse hoodie and my Traverse pants, and I'll just be so comfortable, and the deer won't be able to see me because the the pattern is uh, subalpine. Uh, let's see how it. Go? Sub subalpine optifade is what it's called. Deer can look right at you and it can't see you. Supposedly, we'll we'll see how that works out. Now the question is, did I would I have not been able to go hunting if I had not ordered that hoodie and those pants? Hmm. I just wanted it, so I had enough money <clears throat> left over from you know what, what I've got budgeted, and uh, there you go. I bought it. We've got we are so blessed that we don't need half the things we buy. Frankly, maybe more than half. And yet, that's the culture we live in—very materialistic. And we have to be extremely careful that we don't fall into the same trap as our culture <clears throat> basically is just impelling us toward. We, we look, maybe we're watching a, a, a baseball game during baseball season, and commercial comes on. Oh, uh, you've just got to have this. I mean, your life's not complete unless you have this thing. It's going to bring you great satisfaction. So, you know, call this number right now. Order online or on the phone. Come on, really? Are we going to be suffering miserably if we don't have the next latest and greatest iPhone? You ever seen when a new, new iPhone comes out? They always show the same thing this big Apple store in New York City. And people are lined up for blocks to be the first one with an iPhone, what, fill in the blank? What what are we up to now? 15, 16, something like that. So, I mean, our society is so oriented this way, if we're not careful, we'll get used to it. And we'll fall into the trap of of living for things. It's like a bumper sticker I once saw. I owe, I owe, so it's off to work I go. Well, that guy must have been one of the seven dwarfs. Anyway, Christ warns us about the seduction of devotion to wealth and prosperity. Now, I've got to be careful here because I don't want to make it seem as if any really prosperous person must have fallen, um, it must be that person is just living for money. No, you know who's most tempted towards being seduced by wealth? People who are poor. Some Some of the most, I mean, most oriented towards having more than they've currently got are people who are relatively poor, and they look at wealthy people and they say, ah, oh, that guy's just sold to, sold to prosperity. Well, I've, know, I've known some very prosperous people, very prosperous, and you know what? One of them once told me, I've got this on a slide somewhere, he told me, Randy, here's how I view money. It's a tool to serve Christ. Oh, yeah, have I got a lot of money? Yes. Had this particular individual ever spent any of it on himself? Well, he did have at Centennial Airport a very, very nice Beechcraft Bonanza. <laughs> it cost so much, I don't, even, I don't even know what it cost. I don't want to find out. Uh, He drove, he loved Mercedes, okay? Drove a very nice Mercedes. So did his wife. And yet, this guy is telling me, I don't love these things. The Lord could take away all these things like, you know, he did with Job. Took away everything Job had, except his wife. Wasn't that nice? Curse God and die, his wife said. (laughs) She sounds to me like she was very devoted to, to things. But uh, here we have a situation where it's where your heart is focused. That's the determining factor. But Christ said, if, in your heart of hearts, if you're devoted f- to make money, and that's the most important thing to you, you've got a serious problem. Why? Because Matthew 6.24 says, you cannot serve God and what? Mammon, which is just a word for wealth. And so don't be a part of a worship system that purports to uh, have have Christ at the center of your worship and claim that uh, you are a spiritual person. Because you've got to make up your mind. You'll either hate one master and cleave to the other one, or vice versa. There's no middle ground. And so we all need to check ourselves. Those of us who have little amount of resources financially, or some of us have big resources financially, the big question is, where is your heart of devotion? And God did not want his people becoming Baal worshipers because that would have indicated where their heart really was. Well, how they'd get prosperity any way they could. And We live in a highly materialistic culture, as I've said, and we must guard our hearts lest our devotion to Christ be eclipsed by, notice the way Paul puts it, puts it in Colossians 3.5, Covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, so for us in the New Testament, every time we find ourselves thinking, oh, I've just got to have that one way or the other, I've got to have that. You know, I've already told you probably too many times in the past, I love sports cars. It all started when I was a process engineer and I bought a Datsun 240Z. Wow, that takes me back a long time. It was a 1972 model. <laughs> yes. What were you driving in 1972? Anybody remember? Well, some of you can remember. Jeff, what were you driving? Chevelle Supersport. Hmm? I was driving a Chevelle Supersport. Still didn't hear that. A oh, really? <laughs> All right. Was it a 396 Supersport? 396 Supersport? Four-speed Hurst transmission? (laughs) See? I mean, so that got me going. I've just had a fascination with sports cars ever since. And uh, so, you know, if, if I see a really cool car, like, for instance, a 2024 Corvette Stingray, now they've even come up with a 6 version with a naturally aspirated uh, V8. Uh, what is that, 6 point, forget, 6.2 liters? Anyway, it's got a red line of about, I don't know, seven, 8,000 RPM, develops 670 horsepower, goes from 0 to 60 in 2.6 seconds. Wow! Can you imagine that, driving a car like that? No, I can't imagine that. It's too expensive. I can't afford it. So why should I even, why should I be fascinated with it? This is not a problem for somebody else, folks. This is a problem for moi et vous, okay? And we got to guard ourselves carefully. Money is simply a tool to serve Christ. That's it. Plain and simple. All right, so Leviticus 17 also warns the Israelites against consuming blood. So don't be a you know an idolater, and don't consume blood. You say, well, that sounds disgusting to me. Who would even want to? Uh, But um, this would have been a problem. You know, you you kill an animal. You didn't do uh, the proper uh, way of draining its blood, and or you've drained it out and you drank it. I, th- I think in, in certain cultures back in the ancient Near East, uh, the drinking of blood was a common practice. Not going to be for Israel. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn der- among them eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. This was a capital offense. And, and guess what? Who's doing the cutting off in verse 10? Does that mean that the person's just going to be exiled to another country? That would be that. Would that be cutting off? And the answer is no. When God cuts a person off, he takes their life. And oftentimes when a godly person died, it's said of him that he was gathered to his fathers. That's that's a picture of the fact that this is a godly person and he's now going to join his ancestors in in, uh, death who were godly as well. They're in a place where they're with the Lord. Okay? And now this person's going to go and be with them in glory. But, if a person is said to be cut off, the idea is, not only are they going to die, they're going to die and go to, what? Sheol. In the bad sense of the word, Shaol, place of wicked departed spirits. This is this is saying anybody who, who disobeys this command has got no hope, not for the rest of his life, nor for the life to come. You say, that is an astounding penalty. Why is it there's such emphasis about not doing this. Well, stay tuned. We'll talk about that next week. We're out of time now. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, for its instruction of us. Please, Lord, help us to reverence what we did this morning in communion Christ said, this is my body, this is my blood, eat you all of it, drink you all of it, it's given for your atonement, and Father, we must hold the blood of Christ to be the most precious thing we can think of. Because it was the blood of Christ that purchased our redemption, our ransom, our forgiveness. And as we talk about this next week, I pray that we would thank the Lord. We would thank you for being so gracious to the Israelites and even more explicitly gracious to us today. How thankful we are for the continuity uh, of your living word. Your word which is living and active. We are of all people most blessed. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.